Welcome to the Write It Down podcast with the 1513 Network. I'm Brooke Murata, bringing you one-on-one interviews to challenge, inspire, and encourage. On the mic today, we welcome Britt Harris, Vice President of Camp Resilient and Gold Star Wife. Today, we have two guests on the mic. The second is our friend Jason Hawk, who was featured on episode 48. They both came on to discuss their ties with Afghanistan. They both are a part of the board of directors of Camp Resilient. Camp Resilient is located in North Carolina and helps former military members, current military members, and the family members of the military come and seek refuge, counsel, and healing. Find out how you can help them on CampResilientNC.org. For more, listen to this episode. Sit back, relax, and get your pens ready because this is Write It Down. Welcome back to the Write It Down podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Murata, on the line with our first three-way call. I'm super excited to welcome Britt Harris, Vice President of Camp Resilient, and Episode 48 member Jason Chris Halk. We had you on um, a couple months ago to talk about um, what you've done in Afghanistan and translating the Quran. And then you introduced me to Britt and I'm super excited to share Britt's story and how you guys all met and how you came together to cultivate Camp Resilient. So welcome to Write It Down. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. So, so Britt, you're the vice president of, of this camp, of the board of directors. You're a gold star wife, mother to Christian, former Mrs. North Carolina Universal. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your story and how you have ties um, with the U.S. military? Um, yeah, so my husband was specialist uh, Christopher Harris, who was killed in action on August 2nd, 2017. Um, I was very early on in a pregnancy unexpectedly when he passed and it was only one week after i had told him that uh we were going to be having a child he he died a week later Mm. um since then i kind of just decided to put my hands in all the military organizations gold star things that i could and started trying to network and find ways to give back and help out and other nonprofits. And that's actually how I met Jason. Wow. (laughs) That is um, tragic. And I'm really sorry for your loss. And um, I read a little bit of your story and just kind of read what you what you did in those moments, because you went through a lot of loss in a a couple years. Um, And I I read about how you how you came back from that and what you did to heal um, with just yoga and being outside and being in nature. And so I really, I really loved what you, what you had written in your bio and, and things like that. So, so Britt, why don't you tell us a little bit about the healing process through the, through the loss that you encountered? Um, I would say that probably the first year following Chris's death, I, the first, the first few months until, mm, the first few months until I had my daughter, I tried to isolate. Hmm. Um, I tried to be involved in like media and, and interviews and any way to speak about Chris, but I wasn't as fully engaged as I could have been. Uh, once I had my daughter, I kind of disappeared a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I that whole first year was just such a blur and me kind of stepping in and out of different roles and trying to see like, do I like this? Is it too much? Um, is this, you know, can I handle this? Is it too emotional? Um, and I didn't grieve properly. Mm-hmm. I didn't take any time to really process what I was going through. I think I was just more focused on maybe if I stay busy, um, it'll all go away or I won't have to feel that. Mm-hmm. Obviously that's not the case. Um, so maybe year two, I started going back into hot yoga at our local yoga studio, which I had gone to with Chris and I didn't see it as a workout anymore. You know, as the owner says, you know, it's a way to work in. Mm -hmm. And I started trying to connect more emotionally and spiritually with myself through yoga and being outside. I started hiking and, going everywhere and anywhere that I could to be outside. I 
I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. I hiked all over the deserts um, here in the U.S. that I could. I've done several hiking trips just this year. And it was the more and more I spent time outdoors and the more time that I spent doing yoga and meditating and working on myself, the more I was able to handle some of the things that I had been putting in the back of my head and trying to just not think about. Mm. Um, Just for instance, like certain songs or TV shows or, you know, places that I'd been with Chris, but, well, I can't do that. You know, I can't hear that song. It it played at my wedding. I don't want to hear it. Mm. And I stopped avoiding everything. And I started thinking, well, let me redefine what this is. Instead of a sad song, like this is a happy song. And I became more in tune with myself more appreciative and just <laughs> I'd like to work the word more uh, mellow I'm a pretty high-strung kind of person so it really helps to just relax me a lot mm-hmm. yeah I can relate to that to being to being high strung yeah. and to having a little more <laughs> self-awareness and and being outside really does do that and yoga and and working out um I I do want to ask with your daughter when you had your daughter was that I mean, I imagine it was bittersweet. Is it is it hard? Um, is it awesome that she reminds you of your husband? Like, how, how do you heal through that as well, but also being super excited and grateful to have a precious daughter? Um, honestly, I was very upset to be pregnant after Chris died. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of angry, you know, like, how could this happen to me? And now I have to do it alone. And I was trying to get pregnant. And then it went from anger to like desperation to like make sure the pregnancy like lasted, nothing happened and clinging on to, you know, like hope. Mm-hmm. Like I can't have anything. I can't have a miscarriage because I was so early on in my pregnancy. Um, and then it just led to more anxiety. So my entire pregnancy was a, a lot of anxiety of what if something happens i mean i if i wasn't having nightmares about chris's death i was having nightmares that something was going to happen in labor i mean i couldn't mm-hmm. escape this just like perpetual fear that something bad is going to happen to me and it's gonna be all my fault and i'm going to lose the last piece of chris that exists and it's going to all rain down on me and mm-hmm. i uh once i i gave birth I, that anxiety just didn't leave. I didn't sleep for weeks. And my mother-in-law stepped in and like took care of me and was like, please like take care of yourself, go sleep, let me help you. And I mean, she's a saint, like mm-hmm. thank God for her because she really made sure that I, I didn't go crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, and still is uh, very emotional. I think I'm just better at handling it now. I, would stare at her a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> when she was first born like wow you look so much like him and that was like comforting because it's like well there's like another little Chris here yeah. and then I would you know she would do certain things that mannerisms that Chris did that there's no way that she would know but she would do them anyways and I was like that's just so strange or you know she would look at me from a certain angle and she would look just like him and then I would just kind of take my breath away for a minute and I'd be like oh wow like you know kind of like a punch in my gut kind of feeling like oh yeah I remember Chris used to look like that or Mm -hmm. it's it's very conflicting right it's it's like wow I love her more than life and she's this little twin of him and she's this ray of hope that keeps me going and you know keeps him still here with us but then yeah it's like that constant reminder of like oh but he is not here with us and she looks just like him and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's difficult yeah bittersweet like she's a gift but also reminds you of Mm -hmm. someone you you love what was um chris's mission when he went over to afghanistan um he wasn't able to give me a lot of details Mm -hmm. Uh, i just knew that he was going over there to help the people um he was going to do some missions i won't i don't want to say anything wrong right um not like rescue missions or anything but definitely something in, in keeping the peace right right and then you and then you get the news of it and it just all and, and your world just it comes crashing in in a different way because you don't you don't know all the details you don't know what's going on and then you're you're left 
to cope and and you sh- and you shared with us some of your your the ways that you coped and the way that you you healed did you did you seek a counselor was there was there people in your life that just started coming around you that was just kind of an unexpected gift i know you said it was a blur and i can't i can't even imagine you probably shared the story many times but did you seek counselors was there other things that you implemented in your life during that time um yeah i did seek counseling um immediately mm-hmm. uh i a backstory within so my grandfather died in february unexpectedly had you know helped him and my grandma helped raise me my whole life he was essentially my father he died unexpectedly in February. My best friend um, died from complications the day that Chris deployed uh, from her pregnancy. Sorry, complications from her pregnancy the day that Chris deployed. And then a month later, Chris died. So within six months, I had lost my best friend, my husband, and my grandfather back to back. And I was pregnant. And I I hadn't even processed the first loss so the minute that my casualty affairs officer said counseling, I said, take me right now. Yeah. Um, and the, the army provided that and it was great. And, it, and, you know, the counselor was amazing, but there was n- not to any fault of her. It was just a, a disconnect. Um, it was very clinical and there wasn't a lot of things that we could relate on. Mm-hmm. And she had never lost anyone and she wasn't in the military. And I I didn't know how to connect with her on that. Mm -hmm. So then I reached out to other organizations like connect um, to help me get in touch with other old star widows who had maybe been pregnant or, um, you know, their husbands had died in combat and they were like, well, we know that it probably exists. It's just connecting you is really hard to find someone who is pregnant or was pregnant and did lose them in that same kind of scenario. There's, it was hard to find someone who knew exactly what I was going through just because it was kind of unique for the time. Um, so I was kind of bouncing around looking for help. Like, where do I find it? Where do I go? Who can connect with me? And then as far as people who just kind of showed up in my life, it was a little bizarre. Um, it's always I've had a lot of people reach out to me over the last four years and kind of share the same sentiment. It's, it's bizarre how many strangers will come into your life Mm -hmm. during like your most traumatic events and just stay and help you with, with no expectation, no prior knowledge of you or anything. They're just, Oh, Hey, like I want to help you. And then end up being like, you know, friends for you. I mean, some of the people that I talk to every single day now are people that I met after Chris died and they're just kind of, showed up to support me and never left. And it was incredible. That is incredible. And it's, it's very interesting that, I mean, I, I've been in similar situations in counseling and I know others that are listening have too, where there's a clinical, a very clinical approach to things, but nothing helps you more than empathy when you're going through something and someone who's been through something you've been through, which is why I truly, truly enjoyed reading about camp resilient and what you guys are up to because you guys are offering, um, empathy. And then you're also offering further help, um, clinically and just with your different therapies in nature. And, um, Jason, I want to bring you in on this and kind of give us an overview of camp resilient and what you guys provide, um, for former military members. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I, just to, to link in the, the connection with, with Britt and I, I at the time she was kind of coming back out of her shell and, and really running towards the, the military communities and, and doing a lot of things. I was on the board of directors at Patriot Foundation who does education scholarships. And so we kind of connected and she said she wanted to get into public speaking, which was my world. And so yeah, I tried to show her a little bit about that. And, and she really was just great at it. And, and then I just got to watch her blossom for a couple of years and, and really just get out there and get after it and make impacts in the military family community. And, and that was impressive to me. So uh, when a friend and a couple of us got together to, to think about how do we build Camp Resilient um, and what that would look like, uh, you know, I immediately reached out to, to Britt and one of my uh, former students who's a female uh, Iraq War veteran and said, this, you guys are locals, you're from this county, you know this community, you know what this means, you know, from your backgrounds. 
would you want to join? And they both just said, yeah, absolutely, let's let's do this. So um, it, it's this idea, Camp Resilient, and we call it Camp Resilient North Carolina because we hope every state builds one or two of these. Mm -hmm. It's just the idea that the community comes together, gets a chunk of land, carves out some space on that property to do outdoor focus uh, therapies that help military families, veterans, and active duty people with the trauma and stress of military service. I mean, you just heard Britt's story. Mm. Um, I had lost a friend in Afghanistan as well uh, during my first tour. Um, and Britt's husband was actually a specialist in the infantry battalion I was a specialist in before I became an officer. Uh, so there's all these connections within the military community and we all have these overlapping uh, family commitments to each other. And so this is really about bringing the community together create a space, bring in practitioners who understand how to be trauma sensitive and deal with people, and then just offer different programs. And they're programs you could do indoors, but it's spread and a lot of other people, and, and myself included, you know, my wife and Michelle and I are out walking every day. You know, I'm never more at peace when I'm on a lake or by a, a body of water fishing. You know, it's, it's about getting outdoors to do uh, all these different programs. So. You can do yoga indoors, but we want you to do it outside. You can walk on nature trails. Um, we have equine-assisted therapy where we bring in a horseman uh, who is actually a real cowboy out in the Old West, mm -hmm. uh, you know, part of the world, and it did that actual uh, cowboy work with horses. And he comes out and teaches you how to communicate with horses, which teaches you how to communicate with anybody. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a lot of different things. And it's proven techniques that are used around the world. I mean, Denmark has was kind of a model for us. One of our advisors is from that. Her PhD is in this. Uh, their military goes out to a national forest out there and they have a site uh, where they run soldiers uh, through. Uh, but we really wanted that emphasis on the military family, the whole family, the active duty folks stationed in our state, all the veterans that are here, and then all of their families and caregivers, whether it's an amazing, you know, mother-in-law, like in Britt's case, who came in and, and helped her to raise a child uh, and deal with the loss of her husband and the mother-in-law's son, you know, those people all need to have a chance to get some some good therapy amongst people like them. So we're, mm -hmm. right now we're running our, our fall pilot programs and it's a lot of different cohorts of different groups of people coming through. So you're, a, you're with other people that can understand what you've gone through uh, and we do it in small groups and small bits. So wow. um, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, we, there's, there's healthful eating, mm -hmm. you know, there's a writing, uh, workshop, just anything that we can think of that was helpful to us and our our Camp Resilient family is, you know, there's 50 volunteers involved in this. Wow. Um, and all of us have some different thing that helped us get through our traumas of military service. So we, we try to bring it all in and we're flexible. We're going to use what works. We'll get rid of what doesn't work and we'll keep changing to whatever that military community, that military family needs. That's kind of what we are in a nutshell. Wow. That's incredible. And and with Camp Resilient, how long are the members there? Are they there for months at a time, weeks at a time? Is it more like pop in? Like, what does that look like? So we want to have a couple different options. Uh, we want to have a camp. You know, that's why we call it a camp, a mm -hmm. space that's open every day. So when we have it fully built out and, and we can have enough staff to, to open and close it every day, during daylight hours, you could come in and do things yourself, you know, do self-therapy. But also have the mainstay of, of courses and classes. So, you know, it could be an infantry platoon coming over from Fort Bragg to do a morning yoga session together. You know, 30, 40 guys and gals out there, you know, with beautiful scenery outdoors uh, doing yoga. Or like we're doing right now in our fall pilot programs, you come in for a half a day or a whole day uh, and you might go through five or six different programs. It includes a lunch in there uh, and some time at the end of the day to talk about what we could do to improve and what you liked about the program. So. Mm. Very different, you know, mix and match. We're, we're still sorting out exactly how it will look, but we want it to be as flexible as possible. Some people may only come on the weekends. Some may want to come on a weekday and, and not be at their workplace and actually come out with their family and go through it together. Mm. Um, so it, it definitely has a, a, a bit of variety to it. Right. It's, it's like a little safe haven. As far as funding is concerned, um, is there ways that outsiders can support? How is funding um, navigated. Yeah, so right now we're, it's all voluntary and all donation based. Uh, we are starting to work with different groups who want to pay to come through to have sessions, you know, a, a different 
um, military groups and organizations. But uh, on our website, there is a donate page and you can donate in any way online. Um, you can mail in checks, you can you know, donate stock uh, or bonds. And we, we've had all different ways that people can donate, but it is basically just working on donations at this point. And we're building up some larger donors. We have some big, you know, corporate level stewards that, that help us through this, but it is based on donations. And, and uh, that's that's the one part we're still sorting out. And, mm -hmm. and we know there are groups, you can work with the Veterans Affairs Committee, you know, department, and they have ways to do it. You can work with the active duty military, but for all the veterans mostly, and their families, so there's, you know, we don't want to have to charge them to use this. So yeah, we're absolutely. just uh, running it very efficiently with a lot of volunteers and, and not much paid staff. Yeah, so. that's amazing. Well, we'll make sure to put the website in, in the bio and in the summary for this episode so that people can click it and go support um, our military members and family members because um, it's it's very needed. And we are in a in a climate right now that is peaking the interest of us in America, unfortunately, that's what tragedy does. And then politicians capitalize on crisis. So we're all up in arms of what's going on right now. Um, so Jason, Britt, both of you guys, um, at some point along this question is, what is your view of what's going on over there? Um, we could do a lot of, um, we can blame, we can point fingers, but kind of like a non-biased opinion for those that are listening, what's going on in Afghanistan and how can we help um, just being American citizens? Like we're all praying, we're all nervous. Um, so what's really going on over there? Uh, you want me to start that one, Britt? You can probably jump in on what you've been doing here locally to help out. Uh, with yeah, part that's of the government. That's a, so, so from uh, you know, I'm, as the military uh, guy on this call, on this mm -hmm. podcast, what, what has happened over 20 years in Afghanistan, uh, and I got there in 2002, so this has been a 19-year journey for me. I was talking to senior leaders in the Afghan military and police and, and the uh, elected bodies of the country uh, right up until the end, members of parliament and in their, uh, their, White House, their uh, equivalent of a White House. So um, basically, we helped the Afghans to, to rebuild their security, their military, their police, and to build a government. Um, it was, and when I say we, I mean a NATO coalition of you know, 50 countries. Um, uh, but when we got to the end, we really didn't do the right handoff. Uh, and so Pakistan, who is their neighbor, uh, neighboring country, has been basically running a terrorism factory for 20 years, mm. more than that. But while we were there, uh, Pakistan right next door was who many NATO nations have trade relations with and give money to was taking the money they were getting to create more terrorists to come in Afghanistan uh, and kill Afghans and kill us. So we've been in this weird situation where no one stood up to Pakistan. Uh, so as soon as we announced we were going to leave with everything, take everything with us, aircraft maintenance capability, the intelligence, you know, close air support, all the things you need to fight a war. When we announced NATO in America that we were taking everything away, for the Afghans, that was kind of a big abandonment. They felt betrayed. Uh, and they knew they couldn't, you know, little 37 million people in Afghanistan with a very young military and a young government was not going to be able to stand up to Pakistan with 180 million people, nuclear weapons, a massive army mm -hmm. and a terrorism factory. And so a lot of side deals were cut. Um, some people were paid up to a million dollars to surrender their parts of the country. So wow. um, in reality, Pakistan's terrorism army, their, their kind of proxy force was able to just walk in. Uh, with very little bloodshed and move across the country and basically bribe people into surrendering. Uh, and the military units listened to their civilian masters. And so if the governor said, we're surrendering, some of those people just surrendered. Some of them moved to go fight somewhere else. Um, some of them, you know, just kind of went home. And other parts of the military fought like lions. You know, their commandos and special operations guys really, you know, they didn't want to see their nation surrender. And But in the end, most of the... Uh, civilian government surrendered. Some of them immediately showed up in Pakistan. Uh, you could tell who got the million dollar bribes. Um, and so they chose to, to live another day instead of trying to fight a war that, that even NATO wouldn't fight. We wouldn't stop Pakistan from creating terrorists. So uh, in the end, that meant a hasty withdrawal for us. And we had no leverage and no 
uh, ability to do a good withdrawal with what we had on the ground and there was no desire on our side to mm -hmm. send in what was needed to slow down the Taliban uh, advance and uh, get everybody out. So we've left, you know, hundreds of American citizens and green card holders, and then tens of thousands of Afghans who were qualified to come to America and uh, become citizens here because of their cooperation with America over the last 20 years. So they're just from talking to Afghans, and I speak to literally dozens of Afghans every day, and I have for the last five years really steadily, they really feel betrayed. Yeah. And they feel utterly abandoned and they're just in shock still. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of people will just tell me, I'm still in shock, Jason. I can't believe, you know, this was done to us again, because we did this in, in the 1990s when mm -hmm. the Soviets left Afghanistan. We left too. We stopped caring about it, which is how we got September 11th. So we're right back we're in right. my military view. We're back at September 10th, 2001. The terrorists who hit us that day now have a training base the size of Texas to uh, build the next giant terrorist army in. Wow. We're going to take a quick break to discuss Write It Down's brand new website. You can head over to widpod.com, W-I-D-P-O-D.com, and see all the goods. You'll notice a banner at the top of the page that says Learn More. If you click that link, it'll show you how you can support Write It Down. P.S. My favorite part about the website is the Wid Wall, which is a collection of all the Write It Downs from the show. This podcast is made possible by the 1513 Network. So show the network some love and support by listening to their other shows. If not, just stick with Write It Down, because I'm the coolest, the realest, the illest. Now, back to the show. From my understanding, and I could be wrong, you bring clarity to this, it was Trump's administration that started the withdrawal, and then when Biden got in, he kind of ripped the Band-Aid off. Is that true, or is that just uh, an it, opinion from the media? It actually started in the Obama administration. Okay. We built up under Bush. We built up bigger under Obama. Then under Obama, we started to withdraw. Under Trump, we really scaled it down and created a, a bad peace deal with the Taliban, which they did not adhere to. Um, but for some reason, our government kept adhering to it. Mm -hmm. And then when Biden came into office, he was given the options, uh, which just came out today. The military said, hey, we should stay longer, keep this terrorism, foot, counterterrorism footprint on the ground uh, and just be a weight against this terrorist army in Pakistan or else it's all going to collapse quickly. And he chose to just take it all out uh, and stick with that same bad Trump deal that the Taliban never adhered to. So. The Taliban were basically given a gift, um, and they ran with it. And Pakistan, being their big sponsor, who's paid for by China, um, enjoyed watching us twist and you know, basically get beaten by a bunch of terrorists. Wow. For, for um, American citizen, um, as voters, um, like what, what's your advice? What do we look for when voting for, for a president or, and we know an administ a new administration is coming in and making decisions like this, because I mean, for my sake, I mean, this could be my own ignorance and it, it really is, but also the bias of the media is we don't know what's really going on. And now we feel there's certain people that feel a little helpless and hopeless. So what do you look for when voting? And then, Britt, you can hop in um, on w how you're helping um, in the wake of it all, because we feel helpless. Yeah, I, you know, I teach, I taught college courses on American government, international relations. And I, I taught some adult ed courses uh, before the 2020 election and COVID shut all the college down. But I always talked about it because people ask that question a lot. And I said, you got to vote for somebody who, looks like they're going to make wise decisions you agree with. So you really have to go back and look at people's records. In Trump's case, it was a short record. In Biden's case, it was a long record. Um, Secretary of Defense Gates famously said Biden is, was always on the wrong side of every foreign policy issue for 45 years. Hmm. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who agree that's usually where he came down. Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't surprised uh, with the decision he made. Uh, I am worried about the ramifications it's going to make around the world. You know, there, every nation that we've ever been a partner with is now questioning if they can trust us mm -hmm. if th things get hard. Um, South Korea, Japan, uh, you know, a lot of nations around the world, NATO nations who feel they were kind of lied to on this, on how the withdrawal was going to happen. 
um, they are questioning how much they can trust Americans. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing that a lot in the veteran community, people just saying, I'm wondering if I can trust America yep. Same. right now to keep their promise. So those are tough things. Um, I think going forward, though, you know, I just want to I don't want to bash the, the current president. Every president has lied to our country about something mm -hmm. and, and misled us and probably made horrible decisions. But um, that repeats itself. I think you have to vote for um, someone you think is going to do the best job they can and has some kind of empathy uh, for other people. You know, that's not easy these days. We don't usually let those folks get to the final ballot. Uh, they get pushed out long ahead of that. So it's, it's tough days. And that's every country around the world is kind of faced with that at their final elections nowadays. But I think going forward, there's things that Americans can do. Uh, I know I've been involved with it, Brooke, uh, you know, Tim, one of our ambassadors, Camp Resilient. Camp Resilient's team is, you know, either military or retired military or, or military family. So we've all felt this. We have a connection to Afghans. You know, one of our Camp Resilient ambassadors is the former ambassador from Afghanistan to America. You know, so she's involved with it. Um, I, I think there are ways we can take care of any Afghans who come to live here um, and take care of all of the veterans and their families who served in Afghanistan and make sure they come through this okay. And that's that's what's really important to me. And I'm, I'm working every day to help Afghans get out of the country or get here safely. And, and Britt, uh, why don't you tell her what you've been doing in the local community is we're preparing to deal with refugees that are coming here to North Carolina. Uh, yeah, so I partnered up with a couple different organizations so far. Um, one is welcoming Afghan refugees um, into the Raleigh and Fayetteville area. And so we did a couple news pieces and, you know, tried to spread the word about um, donations that would be acceptable and needed um, as these families come in. And we provide temporary housing for them until they're, they're able to find um, permanent homes. Um, so that's been... That's been, um, I, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Like, um, it's made me feel like a, a way to like give back. A, like a rewarding, like a rewarding yeah. feeling. Like it, it's, it's satisfying a need for somebody else and also making you feel like you're giving back. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a family here in my neighborhood that's I mean, our Afghan refugees that they were lucky enough to be able to come back. Um, a little quicker and be with their son that's here and um, not everybody got that lucky so I know there's a lot of families that are showing up in complete culture shock and they don't speak English they don't know where they are they don't know anything so we're trying to provide just a little bit of things that would make them feel more at home or at ease um, you know traditional foods that they would want or you know Mm -hmm. living arrangements that would be appropriate even the photos on the walls in the uh, temporary housing are photos that would remind them of afghanistan and things that they would possibly you know feel connected to um mm -hmm. so that's the aspect of welcoming home or welcoming afghan refugees and then another organization that i've um started working with is helping the continued effort of retrieving people that are still stuck in Afghanistan because a lot of people have kind of just pretended that that's done and over now that we're gone. Hmm. It's obviously not the case. There's mm -hmm. still people there. There's still a lot of people there that want to get out. And um, there's a lot of behind the scenes networking and um, planning, trying to get those people out and get them to safety. And it doesn't look like anything that's going to happen fast. It's going to be a very lengthy road. But as long as people stay involved, um, you know, that makes it a lot easier. But if it's not in the media, it's not on anyone's mind. And if it's not on anyone's mind, people don't really care to help out anymore. And mm -hmm. It's not, you know, to fault anyone. It's just if you're not thinking about it, you're not thinking about it. Right. Right. And it's not being pushed. What would you say um, the like age demographic of refugees that are coming over here in the sense of are families coming whole together? Are there some left behind that they really miss and they want to be here? What what does that look like? I've seen everything. Mm -hmm. uh, people coming without families, having to just abandon them in the middle of the night because they were allowed to, you know, it, it was just them, you know, someone knew someone who knew someone that was like, you, come on, let's go. Um, you know, young girls that had to leave their family because they worked for a certain political family or something over there. 
um, ending up in another country because they couldn't get a flight over to America. They're just stranded in other places or entire families being brought. I, I've, I've seen and spoke to quite a, a wide range of mm-hmm. different experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd echo that. I mean, I've been working probably with about 300 different Afghans, uh, you know, and I got all their family documentation and pictures and photos and we're trying to forward these lists and get them on uh, some kind of manifest to get out of there. And it is, it runs the gamut from, you know, young children. Uh, and, and there's been cases where just a toddler gets on a plane and then mm-hmm. they're waiting for two or three weeks for the rest of their family to find them somewhere. Um, so luckily there's a lot of groups, you know, I'm, I'm working with four or five or different ones. And, um, Brits working with numerous ones. Mm-hmm. Everybody in Camp Resilient just about working with different groups trying to do this. So there are a lot of hands and arms out there trying to grab a hold of these refugees and get them safe passage back uh, here. And um, Camp Resilient even you know pitched in. One of our ambassadors is uh, Colonel Rahmani, who's a good friend of mine. He's a, he was an Afghan uh, pilot, helicopter pilot, and he's helping to get the pilots out that were able to escape and the flight engineers. So we're working with him. You know, he did a fundraiser on GoFundMe and we're helping him to distribute the cash to those families as they come out. I think a bunch of them just moved to the United Arab Emirates recently. And so they're and they're starting to trickle into America. And so we're just trying to help out with, with cash to buy clothes and shoes and mm-hmm. you know pay for apartments and all the little things uh, that, that people need. So yeah, everybody's reaching in, but it's this is a like Britain hit the nail on the head. This is a long, long-term process. Mm-hmm. The Taliban are basically just kind of holding all these people hostage that would like to leave uh, until they get some concessions from the uh, the rest of the world and what you know to recognize them as some kind of government, even though it's a bunch of terrorists. So, and, and they're running around the country hunting down people who worked with us and killing them um, yeah. in front of their families. So this is tough. Yeah, uh, it's a race against time, and uh, I agree. We can't let it come off the front page. This has got to be something that we we've at least finished this part right. Mm-hmm. What are some of the stories that you guys have been hearing from the refugees of what they've seen and what they've heard over there? I mean, I'm I'm assuming you've had conversations like. Jason, this is a big deal because X, Y, and Z, or Brit, this happened here and, and this needs to be made known, but we're not getting those stories. Do you guys have some of those stories that you could share? Um, well, a local family that is here now, I know it took them 10 days to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, they showed up with just the clothes they had and had barely eaten, had no shoes. The mother's feet were like, bloody um just a complete ordeal to get here uh there was she was sharing a story through her son and he was saying that there was at the airport there was just mass chaos people being trampled someone got shot right beside her that it was just awful i mean even just like the tidbits of information that she was willing to share i was like this is not not the way that a lot of uh people understand it Mm -hmm. um yeah, it's it, it just complete chaos mm-hmm. is what I, I keep hearing people repeat, that it, it's just there's a lot of confusion, or there was at least, and now it's just standstill. Um, so a lot of a lot of people that are still there are panicking now because they feel like nothing's going to happen and mm-hmm. there's no way to get in to get them out. And Yeah. Has, like, the nation yeah. gone from, like, some sort—I mean, obviously it's gone from freedom to, to terrorism, but has it gone from, like, some sort of, like, curfew? Like, if you see anyone at 9 p.m., they need to be indoors? Is there is there things like that that's going on? Yeah, it's it's completely devolved um, back to uh, you're afraid for your life anytime you run into the Taliban. Mm. You know, if you see them anywhere, they can do whatever they want and get away with it. You know, right. The media is starting to leave the country. You know, I'm getting reports from people that— you know, they will just walk into a village. They're going house to house. They're searching people, uh, pulling out young girls, sending them off, you know, to be married. Mm-hmm. To, you know, and I'm talking pre, pre-puberty, um, sending them off to be married to other terrorists. Um, uh, I know one of the pilots were trying to help get out. You know, literally, they came in his house and he jumped out a second-story window and uh, injured himself trying to get away. And uh, I just got a report today from somebody who's 
friend works at the orphanage in Kabul that said the Taliban showed up at the orphanage, and I haven't verified this, but these are the kind of stories I'm getting, Right. Um, showed up at the orphanage and said, let all these young girls out of the orphanage. They're going to be uh, paired up with Taliban fighters to be their wives. You know, so this is the same level of oh. you know, barbaric behavior we saw when ISIS kind of broke out in Syria and just started crucifying people and mm. burning them alive and drowning them. That level of it's something we call in, in the counterterrorism world. When you look at these groups, every one that every generation of these groups gets mm. more brutal and gets more evil. You know, they just lose less and less conscious and more humanity every time. Every generation, they just get worse. So, I'm really worried about what this is going to turn into. The Taliban are, and then the other terrorists in in Afghanistan and are fighting amongst each other. Yeah. So they're killing each other and they're fighting over power, which just means. It's going to be a very dangerous place for mm -hmm. all Afghans. For you know, 37 million people now live in um, the most chaotic and dangerous place in the world, and we are, we don't have anybody there. And the media mm -hmm. will be leaving. I mean, it, once it gets unsafe, the press will leave too, and this will go off the front page. Gosh, so much force and force and cruelty going on over there. Which I saw a um, just a little snippet of an interview of the Taliban spokesperson i can't remember his name maybe you guys would know his name but he was given an interview and the interviewer you know was like so what about the women like how should they be feeling you know with you taking over and he said something along the lines like well they should know that that they are our sisters and should feel peace around us and I'm just like, oh, my word, just the, the bait and switch mentality. I mean, I immediately went to just the, the little history that I have, history knowledge that I have of just World War II and Hitler and how he would, you know, give this propaganda that Auschwitz was this amazing place and would bait and switch him before you know it. They're in gas chambers. And it's it's absolutely horrible. It's it's horrifying. Um it, we should all be praying. We should all be doing the things that we need to do um, as American citizens over here. I want to ask this question, and I, I hope it doesn't come off ignorant or insensitive. Um, is there a little bit of a, a, a potential fear or danger that Taliban uh, members could be sneaking in undercover as Afghan refugees? That's that's been a, uh, a worry. There are some people who always sneak in and out of these migrant flows. Mm -hmm. um, we saw it with ISIS coming out of Syria. So, but there is a almost a triple. I think it's a triple, maybe quadruple screening level that's going on. Generally, all these refugees and evacuees stop in another country mm -hmm. and get screened there, and then they come to America. And they get screened again. Uh, you know, then they'll they'll leave that that screen and they'll go to their community there'll be some screening there as well so mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. there is a system to check all that i've talked to people at homeland security and as part of these groups but yeah you, you always run that risk when you have big migrant flows that the bad guys want to use that too to leverage absolutely um i do have a question um aimed at you again jason um with you were on cnn and is it correct is the video out yet or is it just the transcript of your time there yeah, I, I uh, don't think they cut that video. I, I asked them for the video, but I don't think they liked what I was saying, so they didn't release the video. <laughs> I love what uh, you're saying. I was reading it. I was like, man. And I was like, <laughs> couldn't wait to see it. And I was like, these guys, come on. This is gold right here. And it's credible because of all the work that you've done over the last 20 plus years. So they never cut it, huh? Yeah, I don't think so. I asked a couple times, just texting with, the, with uh, Jim Shuto today about... Uh, Biden and uh, General Miller's testimony yesterday. So, and, and he didn't mention anything about it ever being released. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, Jason, I appreciate a lot of the insight that you've given us and in, in the time that you have served our country and um, just continue to be a voice for us as well. Britt, I, I want to ask you as a mom, um, so how, how are you handling balancing being a mother to a Christian and then also dealing with a lot of these, you know, young families and young women and, and kids coming into the country? How is, how have you been able to balance that mentally? Um, it's emotional. Um, my, 
I try really hard not to get too upset about things. I am not an I'm not a very emotional person. But when I see like little girls that are being like told like they can't go to school, they're just, you know, experiencing like possibly like the worst things that they possibly could. They're being ripped out of their homes to other places. And then I look over at, you know, my child and it's hard not to put myself in their shoes. It's hard not to get emotional. It's hard not to relive all of the things that happened from my own experience of the notification process, the 13 service members that were killed in the bombing. It it brings up a lot of, um, it opens up old wounds. It's, Mm. I've been upset a lot. Um, I keep trying not to be because of course, you know, I'm sitting there crying as I'm seeing like these old, you know, no names have been released, you know, and uh, 13 service members killed in action. And I was like, wow, that's so familiar. And then my little girl comes in the room and I'm like, you know, I have to put it together. Mm -hmm. I have to, you know, pretend everything is okay. And then I'm trying to network all the time. And in addition to doing these things, I'm also like, in school like I'm getting my PhD right now and I'm juggling so many things and it Mm -hmm. there's like a guilt like I need to stop I need to you know take time away from this pay attention to her but then I'm like I'm trying to help other people and better their life there's so many roles that I'm trying to play at one time um sometimes they cross over I try to not let Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. but it's hard to not compare like these families to my own obviously you know there's a lot of my heart still in Afghanistan you know, I explained to someone the other day, like, how could I not care? How could I not be heavily invested? The last time that Chris Harris took a breath, it was Afghanistan air. And the mm. last time that Chris Harris put his feet on the ground, it was Afghanistan dirt. Mm. And the last time his heart beat, it was in Afghanistan. Like, I have a piece of me still there. I am heavily invested mm. in this to the most that I could possibly be. Mm. Um, it's just a daily adventure i guess to see which thing i'm gonna focus on for the day right and it, and it, but on on the beautiful side is that it creates a level of trust for them so that they they know that you've you've been through tragedy and and you do have home um in afghanistan and so i, I imagine that it, it adds a level of connectivity with you and the, the refugees you're balancing a lot of roles you mentioned that you're getting your phd brit what are you getting your phd in psychology yeah wow yep so maybe i can ask you this question how far along are you in into your phd i just started, you just started? I, I got my master's in may and then i went straight in this uh for the fall semester for the phd so i'm only a few weeks in oh well congratulations number one on getting your master's secondly um i was hoping there would be some we could talk a little bit of psychology on here and and granted you can tell me what you know what you don't know but I, i i was curious about this of the 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 brain and just the greatest generation was world war ii and and the ptsd that they all had um so would you imagine that that the psychology is very similar to what's going on in in the minds of the refugees right now that the ptsd oh i'm sure uh i mean there were so many photos shared of just like children in the streets with um like bodies next to them I, I can't imagine the like cortisol levels of children that are experiencing this at like such young ages with no way to comprehend, no therapy, no body that's like teaching them like resiliency at this point. You know, you know, here, if your child experiences something traumatic, almost immediately there's mm-hmm. tons of people like counselors, school, whoever it may be, like everyone steps in. Um, even if it's, you know, your local church, everyone tries to step in and help and counsel and put them in programs and therapy and whatever it needs to be to help them, you know, get through this process and, and deal with their emotion. And then think about the things that they're, they, you know, the children are seeing in Afghanistan or mm. have been experiencing. And there's, there's no one like sitting them down, like, okay, let's talk about your feelings. It's just like survival mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you're at such a young age and your brain is switched into survival mode like that and your you know stress levels are so high it is extremely hard to come down from that and learn how to regulate your emotions as a child who 
later might grow into an adult, most likely, mm -hmm. who has trouble regulating those emotions and still suffers from those traumas that were never appropriately dealt with. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have like a whole generation of people, of refugees, who don't know how to handle what they went through. I mean, lifelong traumatic events that they're going to have to constantly relive. Mm -hmm. um, that alone is like kind of super super emotional yeah absolutely and we were not created to always be in fight or flight and so when you're constantly in this fight or flight and you don't normalize any anything any emotion even your body temperature things that like when you're in a normal state take for granted um i i mean i just can't imagine the mind and, and your mind is so powerful and and what you feed it is the direction of your life so i, I can't even imagine the, just the thoughts and the the trauma and the the reactions that your body um, tries to respond with, um, Jason. I'd like to to kind of bring you in again um, in regards to Camp Resilient. What does the word um, resilient mean without a dictionary to you, and what you hope to foster? And Britt, you can hop in on this question as well with resilience. Yeah, for me and and having especially known Afghans for 19 years now. And, and, and these are people who have, as a nation, gone through that kind of trauma for 45 years. They've, it's been that long since they've had normalcy in their society. Um, it, this is about somehow strengthening yourself uh, to cope with the extra traumas and stress you get from life. And I think everybody needs some resiliency. You need to have that ability to, to, to not just harden yourself, but figure out how to rebuild and cope and and deal with things in new ways. You, know, you always have to find another way to be resilient because you might wear out the old ways. Mm -hmm. I've been around you know, death since I was 18 and went in the Army. I, every year, somebody I knew was killed in some catastrophic way or groups of people and seen you know, dead people in Afghanistan. And these are traumas, especially children, should never face. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people do, and you... you we have to find ways to, to cope with that. Yeah, absolutely. Britt, do you, do you have um, maybe just like a story or something that uh, correlates to resilience and what resilience means to you? Um, yeah, I think the way I, I see it is resiliency is the way that you come back from something traumatic, you know, for instance. And it's the way that you come back more equipped Mm -hmm. that if it were to happen again, that it wouldn't knock you down as hard. Mm -hmm. That if you were to experience this traumatic event again, you would be a better person. You would be able to better handle it. You would know, I got through this before. I can do it again. Yeah. Yeah. It's Love like that. the rebuilding of strength. It's, it's the same thing that we do when we work out. You have these micro tears in your muscles and then you build muscle on top of it so that you're stronger. And so being torn down is not necessarily the best favorite thing in the world, but we do live in a fallen world. And then how you come back up is exactly, um, resilience and, and same with, I mean, in your story, Britt, with the people coming alongside of you and the new people you met after your, um, tragic year, so to speak, um, they helped you foster that resilience. And now you're giving back to foster resilience and others, which is just super empathetic and a beautiful part of your story. And, um, Jason, same with you. You um, started a blog, A Voice for Two Nations, with Timothy Torres. Can you give us a snippet on that and what you guys are hoping to accomplish with A Voice for Two Nations? Yeah, Tim approached me. Tim's one of our ambassadors at Camp Resilient, and he and I worked on the same program and opposite ends of it uh, over the years in Afghanistan. And, and he said, hey, I want to start this blog, a place for Afghans and Americans to share their stories what, what the war, how has it affected them, their relationships with Afghans uh, and with Americans and how that links together. And we started that before uh, things really kind of fell to pieces and we, we pulled everybody out. So um, it's been kind of therapeutic, I guess, in a, in a lot of ways for people that are writing. The tone has changed of what we thought were going to be the, 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 the stories people share. But it has been good, and it's helpful for me as the senior editor on it, and also for our big editing team to think through these things. As we're all kind of, so there, there are Afghans and Americans on the edit, editing team, and, and we've all gone through this. So it's it's just a good way to, to share some stories and get, get things out of your head and onto paper. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and writing, um, can also be a, a very amazing form of healing as well of, of just getting your thoughts out, getting encouragement out, getting inspiration out, insight out. Um, it's, it's just a good outlet to have is to be able to write things down, um, um, that's a shout out to my show, but not really, but we have had a pretty deep and heavy discussion, but very informative, um, and empathetic conversation. Nonetheless, I do want to end with a couple rapid fire questions before we get to our, write it down at the end of the show. Um, so Britt or Jason, or both of you can share something, um, that you've maybe written down, um, words of wisdom to encourage others. Um, but before we get there, Britt, what is your favorite book? Wild by Cheryl Strayed. Wild. And what's that about? Uh, she hikes the PCT alone as a woman, and um, it's after her mother dies. And it's my favorite book and inspired me to start hiking. And mm-hmm. one of the quotes in there, even though the book is peppered with amazing quotes, is that nothing bad could happen to me because the worst thing already had. Wow. And I use that a lot. And like, I survived the worst. So, like, Nothing can stop me. If I could get through the thing that I thought I couldn't survive and I did survive it, then what can stop me now? Nothing. Mm -hmm. And that right there is resilience. I'm sure you found yourself in that book multiple times. Uh, Jason, what is your least favorite activity? Um, These days, watching live news. (laughs) I cut out cable news like three or four years ago. I just read the news now. I, I I hate to see it on when I'm out in yeah. public. It's just so useless. No, I don't mean to laugh, but I imagine like it would be easy or an uh, answer to this question would be like landscaping, pulling weeds. And now we're living in a day and age where it's like watching the news. I think that is my I'll least go favorite. Pull weeds. Yeah, exactly. I'd rather pull weeds. Okay, Britt, do you squeeze your toothpaste from the bottom, the middle, or the top? the middle oh come (laughs) on like a crazy person i don't even mean to do it i just do it and then later on i'm like why Uh, i don't like it i I don't do it i don't like that for you that's how i know (laughs) if someone's used my toothpaste if they start squeezing it from the middle because that's just not how it works okay jason chocolate or sour candy chocolate what kind of chocolate are we talking here any chocolate i'm not picky when it comes to that okay gotcha gotcha that's the same okay and brit last one would you rather go for a run or lift weights oh my god neither um <laughs> wait wait i guess you're like is yoga an answer yeah, is, is hiking I, would, <laughs> I don't like running but i guess weights. weights yeah because you could potentially be in air conditioning and not yeah. really go as intensely i get that i get that Okay, well, we are at the part of the show where I ask each guest to give us something to write down, to remember, to inspire, challenge, or encourage. Um, so one of you guys can go. Both of you guys can go. You can go at the same time. Might not be the best for recording, but hit me with it. Why don't you go first, Britt? Oh, great. Come on, now, Jason. The pressure. The pressure. <laughs> The uh, intensity. She already gave a good one with her book. You couldn't have given her a little more time. I'm just kidding. Something inspirational. Yes. Maybe Is words you flip by. Oh, I mean, I could give you another quote from my book that I like. Do it, because um, I don't okay. know if I'd ever read it. To be honest, I'm a bad reader. So give me the quote. It, well, it's a movie too. Oh, I could do that. I could do yeah. that. That it's is got Reese Witherspoon in. It's really good. Oh yeah, I would totally watch that. That is the joke in my family. Is like Brooke, why don't you read this book? I'm like, I'll wait for the movie because that is how I can handle things. It's a movie, and it's really very closely. Uh, it, it keeps it keeps with the book really okay, well. Okay, good, um, good, good. All right, let me make sure I'm quoting it properly before I get on here and say, okay, so it was the, so when we hiked Kilimanjaro, they said, think of a mantra and tell it to yourself the whole way. And when things get rough, like this is what you need to tell yourself. And I was like, okay. And everyone's was really short and we had to go around. I didn't realize we were gonna have to tell them to everyone. So I was like, all right. 
And so I had mine and then it was my turn and it was really long. But the quote is, I walked and I walked my mind shifting into a primal gear that was void of anything but forward motion. And I walked until walking became unbearable until I believed I couldn't walk even one more step. And then I ran. Wow. And that was something that I always like told myself when I was like hiking as I walk until I can't walk anymore. And then I'm going to run because there's nothing that stops me. Like I will always stay motivated and I'm going to go even when I think I can't keep going. I love that. And I try to keep that mindset about everything. Like I want to give up, but now like keep going until you run. I love that. So basically stopping is an option. So you just right. got to keep going. I love that. Well, also, Jason put you on the spot to have this long quote. So consider this your second Kilimanjaro. <laughs> Jason, what is your second ride down? I just want to say you can when I was putting the board of directors together for Camp Resilient, you can see why I thought of Brit. Oh. You know, that, that kind of mantra is what you need when you're going to try to take on something as challenging as helping military families and communities with resilience. So, yeah, but uh, you're mine, impressive. Mine really goes back to, uh, you know, my, I've just been thinking a lot about my 19 years of activity and, and relationships with Afghanistan. And that's a question I've thought about many times during it and worked on for a year as part of it. Um, before you start a war, figure out how you plan to end it. Dang, that's good. Mic drop. That, that can be applied to a lot of things in life. Wow. Write it down. Britt Harris and Jason Hawk, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. This was fun. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Write It Down podcast. This podcast is a part of the 1513 Network. You can catch a variety of shows on their website, 1513.com. If you enjoy listening to Write It Down, please subscribe, share with your friends, and if there's any ink left in your pen, write a review. For more content, follow the fun on Instagram by following at W-I-D-P-O-D. That spells WIDPOD. Super cool. Stands for Write It Down Podcast, but it's abbreviated to WIDPOD. Anyways, thanks for listening, and we will catch you later.